For our sermon today, our scripture reading will be from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 32 through 45. I will give you a moment if you got your Bible or cell phone here or at home, I'll give you a moment to get there. Verse 32 says, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the, gent the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand, and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called to them, to him, them to him, and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Good morning. It's good to be with you today. If we haven't had the chance to meet, my name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Main Line. We are continuing our Sunday morning teaching series in the book of Mark, and we see today that Jesus is leading the disciples into something that is way above their pay grade, things that are overwhelming for them, and what we see coming out of them isn't pretty. We've talked before about how suffering and the pressures of life do what? They squeeze us. Specifically, they squeeze our hearts so that what is inside of us then gets pushed out. It's like a cup of water that you bump. I shared this illustration with you several months ago. But being squeezed by the pressures of, of life is like a cup of water that gets bumped so that water ends up on the floor. And when you ask why there's water on the floor, our modern world says it's obvious. It's because you bump the cup. But then we thought about how the Bible reframes that discussion by asking why there isn't Pepsi on the floor. And you realize that there isn't Pepsi on the floor because there isn't Pepsi in the cup. 
And so the bump doesn't put Pepsi or water in the cup. It simply exposes what is already there to start with. That's the same thing that pressure and suffering do in our lives. They don't cause us to be good or bad. They don't put good or bad in your heart. They simply create a context that shows whether goodness or badness is already there inside. And that's what's happening today. Jesus is leading his guys into a pressure-packed situation that then exposes what's inside of them. And he then takes what comes out of them and uses it to help them understand better what his kingdom is all about. Just like he will lead you and me into pressure-packed situations and use what comes out of us to teach us better about his kingdom. So to get on board today with his agenda, this passage teaches us to do three things. First, it teaches you to notice how self-oriented you can be when you're squeezed by life. Second, it teaches you to learn that the way of faith has a radically sacrificial nature to it. And third, it teaches you to realize one more time just how much you need the gospel. This passage teaches you to notice how self-oriented you can be, how sacrificial the life of faith is, and to realize how much you still need the gospel. So first, how self-oriented you can be. We have come now to the third time in essentially two chapters where Jesus intentionally takes the 12 disciples aside to tell them what's about to happen to him. And he chooses to do this this third time as events are starting to spiral out of their control. Here's the context, verse 32. Jesus is leading them to Jerusalem. He's walking ahead of them, but there's something different about him, something that they haven't seen before. And what they see is unsettling. It causes some of them, verse 32, to be amazed, others to be frightened. They sense that something is going on, and they feel some of the weight of it, and it's in that moment that Jesus chooses to tell them what's going to happen to him, that he's going to be tortured, mocked, killed, and then rise again. Now, the last time he was this blunt, back in chapter 9, they responded by having a debate arguing who was greatest, most important among them. That's what happened when they got squeezed that time. This time, however, something different comes out. James and John approach him, and they say, verse 35, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That's a fairly audacious way to start. Verse 37, what is it they ask? Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Now, in their culture, they're not asking for intimacy. They're not asking for relational closeness at his left and his right. And they're not asking for honor. We want to be elevated. Instead, being at someone's right or left meant that you were second and third in command. It's kind of like being a chief of staff or a prime minister. They're asking here for cabinet positions. They've just heard Jesus say, verse 33, we are going up to Jerusalem and the wheels start turning in their minds. The Messiah is going up to Jerusalem. There's going to be a showdown with the Gentiles. This is it. He's about to enter into his glory and usher in the kingdom. Now's the chance for us to grab some of this glory for ourselves, some of that power. Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand, one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus understands he gets that this is what they're asking, that it's a bid for power, that as this moment squeezes them, what comes out of them is this longing for power, 
a longing to rule over others and to be served by them, and that that's actually part of what has motivated these guys to follow him. It's not just these two, but it's in the other disciples as well. Verse 41, when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Indignant, furious, irate, offended. Why? You know what this is like. You only get upset when someone wants something, if what? If you also wanted it, and if there's not a whole lot of it. You get upset because if they get it, that's going to impact and affect you. The disciples are indignant because in some way they also want power and positions of power. They are hooked internally by the same stuff. And Jesus sees that this longing for power is in all 12 of them. And so verse 42, he called them to him, not just called James and John, but he called them to him and said to them, all 12, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. He says, I get it. Out there in the larger world, there's an understanding of how things work. An understanding that says that the best life that you can possibly have is one where you lord it over others, where you impose your will on others so that you can get what you want out of life. Where the great ones, those who have it all, exercise authority over others, where they wield influence over others in such a way that they make other people do what they want. Now, why does Jesus bring up what the Gentiles do? It's because he discerns that that has infiltrated into his disciples and that he, this is actually what his guys want. That it just makes sense to them that the best life that you could possibly have is one where you are in charge of as much of your life as you possibly can be so that you can make things turn out the way that you want them to. Which, if you think about it, is really not all that different from today. We also think that the best life possible is one where we are on top, where we call the shots in our own lives as much as possible, where we are not under someone else's authority, having to listen to them call the shots in our lives. And so we tend to value several different things in this world in order to get that kind of life. We tend to value power, we tend to value wealth, and we tend to value connections. And we seek out these things because we think these things will give us a life that will finally get us what we want out of life, where we don't have to listen to others telling us what to do. And so we look for power. You can get power in a variety of places, right? It comes from your position at work, your reputation in your field, aligning yourself with whatever group or political body seems to be calling the shots at that time. And you try to get power to impose your will onto others, your ideas onto others, make them line up with your agenda. You use power, or you can use wealth. You use wealth to buy influence. You reward those who do what you want, and you withhold resources from those who don't. Or you use connections. You try to get to know people who can help you get ahead in life. You try to get on their good side so that they'll use their power to move you forward. You use power, wealth, and connections to elevate yourself. Jesus' terms, to lord it over others, to exercise authority over them, to make other people give you the life that you want. 
This is the Gentile way. Now let's ask the obvious question. What's wrong with that? Especially if you use your power, wealth, and connections for things that you think are good. To right wrongs, to correct injustices. What's wrong with that? What's wrong is that relying on power never changes anyone's heart. Parents, you know what I'm talking about. When your children are small, you can make them behave a certain way. You can make them go to bed at certain times, have some semblance of manners, say please and thank you, do their homework. But if they don't take those values and internalize them, you're working against the clock. Because at some point, they're going to mature. They'll mature physically, emotionally, relationally, until what? Until they don't need you. And they don't need your approval. And if the only thing that was motivating them was the power that you held over them, if you never won their heart, then as soon as they can safely rebel and do their own thing, they will. You see this in one-on-one -on -one relationships, and you see it in groups, in societies. If a group of people do not sense that their society genuinely cares about them, if it has not won their hearts by loving them, caring for them, but has relied on power to lord it over them, to exercise authority, to promote its own agenda, you should expect that group of people to what? To resist when they get a chance. But here's the problem. How does a child or a societal group resist power? Isn't it usually by finding and leveraging power of their own? Children grow up so that they're no longer powerless, and they can use their power now against their parents' power, or societies will band together individuals, collectively pulling their power together to generate a new power. This is the Gentile way. You fight power with power. You assert your power to overturn someone else's power until what? Until some other group with greater power overturns yours. This is what the Gentile way produces, an endless chaotic power struggle where you are either wielding power over others, using your power to keep others at bay, or where you are under someone else's power. This is what comes up out of the disciples as the pressure of the moment squeezes them. They don't want Rome over top of them. They expect the Messiah is about to bring in his kingdom to overturn Rome. They sense that he's going to use power in some way to do that, and they want some of that power. That's point one. You have to see how self-oriented you can be when you're squeezed. Point two. Jesus takes what comes bubbling up out of these guys as an opportunity to teach them that following him, being his disciple, takes you completely out of that world, out of that way of thinking, and it puts you into a completely different world, a self-sacrificial one. He says, verse 43, but it shall not be so among you. The Gentile way shall not be your way. You have to abandon that way of thinking, that, that longing that you have for that. This is not the life I'm leading you into, Jesus says. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. 
He says there is greatness in his kingdom. There's still leadership. There's still authority. Jesus is still in charge. He hasn't given that up. There's still greatness. But it's a different kind of greatness than what you find in the larger world. It's a different way of approaching people. It's a different kind of power. And this point is very easy to miss about the kingdom of God. It would be very easy right now, very possible, to think in terms of a single continuum. Continuum with the Gentile way on one end and the Jesus way on the other. But if you let yourself think like that, what you're missing is that Jesus and his kingdom have absolutely nothing to do with the way fallen humanity structures itself. His kingdom is not part of that continuum in the world. It's not part of how greatness is measured by the world. Think about it this way. The Gentile way of life defines greatness by how much power you have over others. And so it has poles on that continuum. Either you are on one end where you have the power to impose your will on others, or on the other you have the power to resist someone else imposing their will on you. That's all on the continuum of the Gentile way of thinking about power and greatness. And Jesus comes along and he says, it shall not be so among you. There is greatness in my kingdom, but it has nothing to do with that kind of power, the imposing or the resisting kind. It's not about how strong you are to impose your power. It's not about how strong you are to resist someone else's. It's about a completely different kind of power. It's the power to serve, to voluntarily use whatever power you have to act in someone else's best interests, not to force them to act in favor of yours. Where does that fit on that Gentile continuum? You realize it doesn't. And you and I have to get used to that way of thinking, that Jesus does not enter into our lives and notice where we are on some kind of continuum and then try to nudge us a little bit in toward the middle while he takes people on the other end of the continuum and tries to nudge them so we all sort of get into this middle place where it's an average of everybody else's perspective. Jesus does bring us all to the same point, but he does so first by taking us off of the continuums that make so much sense to us. Effectively, he says, my kingdom's completely unlike anything you've ever seen. And if you follow me, you're going to have to get used to radically thinking differently than you've learned in the larger world. I'm not asking you to nuance your perspective a little bit, to add a couple of ideas to what you already believe, to marry your beliefs with the beliefs of the other camp, and so somehow the total is now closer. Instead, he says, I'm completely altering your paradigm. The ways of the kingdom clash with the ways of every human kingdom. And as the New Testament scholar Jonathan Edwards has pointed out, nowhere does that clash become more apparent than when dealing with the realm of power and what you do with the power that you have. Now, why is that? Why is greatness measured by how much you use your power on behalf of others? It's because that's who God is. Jesus grounds his teaching in himself. He says, verse 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
He says, I, the Messiah, the Son of Man, did not come to see how much I could get others to give me or to do for me. I came to serve, to see how much I could do for others. Which makes perfect sense if you think about it. What is the nature and character of God? Fundamentally, it's that he is a giver. He makes the entire universe not because he's looking to get anything from it. It can't give him anything back that he hasn't already given to it. He's always going to give more than he'll ever get back. But God made everything so that what? So that now there's beauty and goodness where before there there was nothing. Now there's glory and wonder where there only used to be emptiness. Now there's life where there was no life. There's only anything because God gives. And God does not give once and then is done with that. Instead, God gives so that he has to keep giving, so that he has to keep pouring energy into what he's made to keep it going, to sustain it. He keeps giving so that life has everything that it needs to live. And more than that, so that life enjoys living. He gives because that's his fundamental nature. I was looking out the window in my office earlier this week, and I see someone walking their dog down the street. And I noticed this because the dog is jumping in the air, but it's not jumping on two legs. It's jumping all four at once. It's kind of bouncing down the street. And I start to laugh. I think this is hysterical. Because what do you see there? You see life. You see the goodness of being alive, the goodness of having a body, the goodness of being with a person. You see enjoyment from what? From a dog. And if you have eyes to see behind that, you see a God who makes that possible, who gives everything to this dog that is necessary for the dog to enjoy the life that God gave it. This God continually serves his creation for the good of his creation down to the lowest levels of being. This is who he is. He's a giver. And this is who he made you to be because you're an image of God. You now reflect him. You now act like he acts. That's what your delight is in. This is not the Gentile way. This is his way because of who he is. The Son of Man came not to be served but to serve. It's God's fundamental nature, and so it's the fundamental nature of his kingdom. And it's the fundamental nature, then, of all of those who follow him. He came to serve, not to be served, and he came to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's when you realize that serving comes with a cost. And there's no way to avoid that cost. In order to serve us, Jesus had to pay a cost. In order to serve others, you also will have to pay a cost. This is also something that you can see that's built into the way that the world is. I was on a flight earlier this week, and I was sitting behind a family with three kids, three very young kids. And I thought, "Uh uh-oh, what's this going to be like? How long is this? I better put my earbuds in, see if I can turn this up loud enough. And I was surprised. Those three kids were so good. They enjoyed the entire flight. Why? Because their parents were constantly engaged with them. Parents talked with them throughout the entire flight. They fed them snacks. They handed out toys. They put headphones on. They had videos for the kids to watch. The kids were great, but there's a cost involved, isn't there? 
because the parents spent the entire flight focused on their serving their children. And so the parents did not have the freedom to just check out for a little while, take a nap, read a book, have an adult conversation. The parents gave up what they could have had in order to give the kids what the kids needed. They paid a cost so that their children didn't. Do you understand what I'm trying to say here? There's a cost to a child being on a plane. It's long, it's boring, there's not much to see or do. It's uncomfortable. Things happen to your ears, to your stomach that you can't control. Your legs get restless, but you can't go anywhere. You have to stay in your seat. It's not a lot of fun. And so these parents paid to give their children a better experience, a better life. The parents paid so that the children didn't have to. Frankly, they paid so that all the rest of us didn't have to pay. If you've ever been on a plane when a child has acted out, you know there's a big cost. Because not only does that child have nowhere to go, you have nowhere to go. And you're stuck there with them. The child pays the cost for being on the flight, and so do you. These parents made sure no one else paid. Neither the child, nor children, nor the rest of us. Because why? Because they paid. In order to love someone, to serve someone, you have to give up your life. You have to give up something that you could have had because someone has to pay. It's the nature of relationships. Either we pay to love others or they pay the price of not being loved. And every single person in this room has firsthand experience of that. You may not have been loved as well as you could have been by your parents, but they did serve you. They fed you, cleaned you, paid to clothe and house you. Even if they did not do everything that they could have for you, they gave up some of what they could have had for themselves in order to give to you what you needed. They gave up money, they gave up time, so that you would survive. Why? Because either they paid or you pay. You've experienced this in other ways, too. You ever have a friend that you called because you just you really needed to talk? And they dropped what they were doing to listen. Now, why did they do that? Why did they let you interrupt them? Because if they didn't, then you would have been left struggling by yourself. Either they paid or you would have. Or maybe you've had a mentor, someone who gave up some of their time to benefit you, to help you think through your life and career, to help you develop your skills in advance. Why did they do that? Why did they give up time that they could have used to advance their own life? It's because either they paid or you pay. That's the nature of a world made by a giver. God has structured it in such a way that we can now share in the joy of giving, we share in the joy of serving, of paying so that someone else doesn't, of paying so that someone has a better shot at life. It's a goodness that every single one of us in this room has experienced. But here's the hard part of this morning. You can hear the logic of how following Jesus will produce a much better society. You can hear how serving is a fundamental part of who God is. You can even think through ways that you yourself have experienced it. You can know the goodness of this way of life. 
And yet in the moment that you get squeezed by life, you can still default to a life of not serving, of wanting to be served instead. And that's true of some of us right now. Let me, let me gather us a little bit as family and just talk to us as family for a moment. We have a number of people here who serve, and, and they serve us really, really well. And there are some who are serving really, really well who can keep going. They're not worn down by the past two years so that they need to pull back. But we have some other people who are serving who really need badly to take a rest. And they need others of us from the community to step in and to take our turn serving instead of only being served. And we have opportunities here for you to serve. For instance, we've let you know that we need Sunday school teachers for our children's ministry, and we still do. We even have non-teaching options, but we really need the help. We need the help because our kids need to be served, and some of us need to step into those places. Or think about our CGs. Our CG leaders have done a great job over the last couple of years, and some of them are really, really tired at this point. They need someone else to pitch in, someone else to help carry the load. Our Sunday morning welcome team and praise team have made church possible so that we have not missed a single Sunday throughout the entire pandemic. Done really well, serving without complaining. And we could really use some new volunteers in some of those positions. We need other people to serve. And I know everyone is tired. <laughs> there is not a church in the world, probably. There's no society in the U.S. that's not been worn out over these last several years. And I know how easy it is to think in this moment, Bill, you don't understand. I've been with kids all week long. I just want to enjoy Sunday morning worship. I don't want to serve. Or I work hard all week. I put in more hours than I can count. It's enough that I just show up for CG. I don't want to do anything more than that. Or I'm tired by Sunday. I don't want to set my alarm and show up early to set up chairs, to be part of the sound team, the stream team, the praise team. I don't want to come and pray, smile at people and greet them. I just want to come and go home. We can hear about the goodness and the godliness of serving we can even recognize that we have all experienced the goodness of being served, and yet we can struggle when we're squeezed to serve, and we can want to be served instead. Now, why is that? Because teaching is not enough. It never is. If all you needed was to know the things that we've talked about today, to know the content, to have information, Jesus would not have needed to come to earth. Think about it. He's already said something similar to the disciples in chapter 9, the time when they were debating which one of them was the greatest. He told them that greatness was measured by how they served. And yet here we are, chapter 10, James and John are still thinking about how to be served. They've heard the best teacher that there has ever been. He was as clear as he possibly could be, and they're still stuck, completely self-oriented wanting to be served, just like you and I get stuck. And that's what sets Jesus apart from every other religious figure. 
It's what sets Christianity apart from every other religion. See, the purpose of all other religious leaders and founders was what? It was to live. It was to live and to be an example to their followers. Now, Jesus is an example to us, but he's an example that we can't live up to on our own. And that's why he came to earth. Not to live, but to die. To give his life as a ransom for many. Which brings us to point three. You have to realize one more time just how much you need the gospel. Not only to come to Jesus the first time, you need it in order to keep following him. Your ability to follow him now, to do what he tells you to do, to serve, means that first he has to do what he did to serve you. What are James and John demonstrating here? They're showing us that the Gentile way is hardwired into us. That wanting to be served is our default setting. And that on our own, we can't stop wanting that. There's a very important word in verse 45. It's the word ransom. This is the first time that Jesus has told us why he has to die. Up till now, he's been teaching that he had to die. Now we get the reason. Ransom is a very specific word that means there is a price that has to be paid to free someone from bondage. It means that someone's been captured in some way. And so you can think about a prisoner of war or someone who's enslaved to someone else or someone who's forfeited their life or someone who's in jail who can't get out without someone paying to release them. This is someone who isn't free, who can't free themselves, who needs someone from the outside to buy them out of the place where they are so that they can be free. And Jesus says, that's what I came to do to give his life as a ransom for others, to give his life for their lives. That he's come to take the place of the many, that he will trade his life for theirs, so that what should have happened to them will happen to him instead. What is it that should have happened to the many? Jesus alludes to it in verse 38, when he asks James and John, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? You think, what, what's he referring to there? You have to go back into the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, you discover there's this theme of the cup of God's wrath against human sin. And God makes those who have sinned drink this cup down to its dregs. That's the cup image. It's the wrath of God. Baptism, similar symbol. It's the symbol of being overwhelmed, submerged by the waters of God's judgment. And Jesus is saying that he will take the cup and the baptism, he will take his people's place, absorb all of God's wrath, all of God's judgment against their sin, and that it is that that it's going to take in order to set them free. That's what it'll take to give them back their lives that they forfeited. That's the reason why, verse 33, he'll be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They'll condemn him to death. They'll deliver him to the Gentiles who will mock him spit on him, flog him, and kill him, all while he's exhausting God's wrath against us. And then he'll rise. That's what he'll have to do in order to ransom you and me from being enslaved by our sin. That's what he has to do to pay what we never could. And he does that so that he can put new desires in us, like his desires, so that he can not only free us from being self-oriented, but he can put that desire in us 
to give sacrificially. When Jesus says that that's what he's come to do, he's saying that this is our most basic problem. It's that we are prisoners who cannot do what God says is best. That we are locked into a way of life that rejects God's way of life. That we are prisoners of this self-referential way of life, a way of life that always finds a way to point back to ourselves. A way of life that we can't escape on our own, that we are slaves to our desires, that we cannot break free from that slavery on our own, that we have to be bought out of it. And when Jesus says that he came to give his life as a ransom, he means you can't stop yourself on your own from being a prisoner. You can't stop yourself from wanting to be served. And he's saying no one can talk you into being free not even if you agree with them. Sure, you can act like you're serving. But if Jesus has not set you free, if he has not ransomed you, you're going to discover that every single thing you do always comes back around to you. That you're not really serving others as much as you're serving yourself. For instance, after hearing this this morning, you might feel guilty about not helping out at church. And so you'd be inclined to volunteer. But what is that? That's just to get rid of the guilt. Which is what? It's just a way for you to no longer feel bad about yourself. Guess what? That's still about you. <laughs> That's not about serving anyone else. Or you might serve because you think you should. That good people are responsible. That they contribute. What's that? That's serving out of a sense of duty. Sense of honor. Which is not for other people's benefit. But for yourself. Or you might serve because you think God will like you better. Or maybe because you'll feel good about yourself and you'll like you better. But again, that's just trying to get something out of it for yourself. It's not that you are invested in this for the sake of another person, which means what? You're still not free from you. If you don't understand that this is the most fundamental problem that human beings have, you will never understand yourself. And you will never understand why you do what you do. You'll never understand why you find it so hard to think outside of what benefits you and what gives you the life that you want to have. You won't understand you, and you won't understand anyone else either. You won't understand that everyone that you've ever met comes born into this world, locked into serving themselves, captured by themselves, by their own interests. You won't understand your friends and family. You won't understand the people that you work with. You won't understand the people that you read about and hear about. You won't understand the people on the national and the global stage. Your life and the larger world will not make any sense as you see people continue to grab power and do things that seem to be not in their best interest, but they think it is. You won't understand your deepest need, anyone else's deepest need, and you won't understand the solution. You won't understand the only way that you can serve anyone else is if Jesus serves you first. If he first sets you free from you, only then can you serve others because then you don't need anything from them. See, if Jesus really did die for you, if he gave his life in place of yours, if he lived the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died to free you from yourself, if he did all of that, he's already met the greatest need that you have. At the same time, he's connected you with the giver of all good things who alone can give you what you truly need. There isn't anything that anyone else can do for you that comes close to what you already have. 
which means what? Finally, now you are free to care about other people just for them. Free from having to try to have them meet your own needs. You can now enjoy others. You can serve them out of the fullness that you get from God instead of emptiness trying to get something from them. Now, how do you know if you're living out of that kind of love, out of that reality, out of the fullness of knowing that Jesus loves you and values you that much, out of knowing that you matter that much to the giver of all good things? How do you know? Pay attention to when you have to serve. Not the times when you feel like serving, but when it's clear that you have to. When God tells you to, or when it's inconvenient, or when you'd rather be doing something else. When your child needs help and you have just had a miserable day. When your friend interrupts you and what you were doing. When your spouse has been cold to you over the last several weeks and now asks you for your help. When you have to serve and it's not what you want to do in that moment. Pay attention. Remember what Jesus said was true of his kingdom? Verse 43, that whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. What's fundamentally true of servants and slaves? They don't get to decide when to serve. They're told to by the one that they owe their life to. So think, how do you respond when God makes it clear that it's your turn to serve? when it's clear that you need to give up what you want out of life in this moment to give someone else what they need. How do you respond? If you find yourself resisting him, balking at serving, if you disobey, what does that say about you? It says that you don't really believe that at one time you were a prisoner who had forfeited your life. It says you don't really believe that you only have a life now where you are able to make decisions because Jesus ransomed your life. That he gave you back the life that you had given up. And if he gave you your life, then whose life is it really? It's his. And it's his life to direct. And you only have it because he restored it after you lost it. That gives him the right to tell you when and how to serve others with it. So if you refuse to serve, you're saying you don't really believe that at one point in time you were a helpless prisoner. You don't believe your past in such a way that it influences your present. Or maybe you do believe. Uh, you do obey, excuse me. But you really don't want to. And that unwillingness comes out. You grumble about serving, drag your feet, you complain that the other person is not giving you enough back for what you're giving them. If that's the case, your struggle is not with your past, your struggle is with your present. You don't believe that you are more loved right now than you can begin to imagine. <laughs> that you cannot possibly be more loved than you are right now. You're not feeling it, experiencing it, living out of it. So what do you do if you refuse to serve or if you grumble about having to do so? The solution is the same for both. You have to go back to the gospel. You have to go back, as Gentry said earlier, you have to remember. You have to remember what you were freed from. You have to recall what did it feel like to be trapped by your own heart. You have to remember what you were freed from. You have to remember how much it cost to free you. 
You have to feel one more time the love that willingly paid that cost that kept you from having to pay it. You go back to the gospel and you ask Jesus, I need to have a fresh experience of this, a greater sense of my past helplessness, a greater sense of your present goodness. I, I, I need a greater sense of you. Re-experience that. Your past helplessness, his present love, and that will move you to serve others in the same way that he served you. Lord Jesus, thank you for serving us. Lord, you chose to serve us when we had no clue how much we needed to be served. You chose to give us your life instead as a ransom. Lord, a, a life that was infinitely worthwhile and valuable in order to rescue ours. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters that we would re-experience that now. Let me invite you as we go into communion to take a few moments to pray now. Maybe it's a time for you to confess your sins of not wanting to serve. Maybe it's a time where you re-remember your past or you re-experience God's love for you. But take a few moments, get your hearts ready, and we'll share communion together.